Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week, we enjoy an Art of the Garden conversation with artist, historian, gardener, and environmental advocate Rebecca Allen. Bronx, New York-based, Rebecca is known for her richly layered and chromatically nuanced paintings. Her work investigates watersheds, environments, and landscapes, and is inspired by her deep interest in botany and land conservation. In 2018, Rebecca established Painterly Gardens, a firm specializing in sustainable garden design. And from January through June of 2023, Rebecca's solo show, Cultivating Eden, is at Wave Hill Garden. Rebecca, a longtime friend, uh, mostly remotely, I am so pleased to welcome you to Cultivating Place today to explore so much more about your work. I'm so happy to be talking with you, Jennifer. I've just given you a very broad introduction. When you introduce yourself in professional settings, how do you introduce yourself, Rebecca? And in that introduction that I'd like you to share with listeners, could you also include the distilled kind of version of the role or the importance that plants hold in your life right now? Well, I am a painter. And I am also a horticulturist who designs gardens and cares for them for my clients. And I also enjoy and am very active as a writer on art and design. Um, I'd also like to mention that one of my passions is land trust ecological advocacy. So mm. I'm I'm active as a board member um, with the Kentucky Natural Lands Trust, which is a, a special channel for all of the other forms of work that I do that is really concentrated around understanding large landscapes, large natural landscapes, and our relationship to them and how we can protect and advocate for them. In all of that, your fine art painting work, in your research, in your land trust advocacy, could you give us a distilled kind of mission statement or thesis for the role that plants play in your life, do you think, Rebecca? I believe that plants are my conduit to learning about and understanding deeply the relationship of beauty to nature mm. to human relationships to our relationships with the natural world and and to each other and so these intertwined endeavors of painting garden making research writing land advocacy they're all swirling around in my life yeah in a kind of um concentric energy that really 
it, it's a force field that keeps me moving forward. And it also is, um, it's a journey of always learning and finding ways to make the world better. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So from that, let's go back into those concentric rings all the way back to the earliest influences, whenever they might have shown up in your life, Rebecca, of, you know, maybe where you were born and raised and the people and places and plants who, who would have grown you into a woman for whom this kind of trifecta, right, of, of intellectual work, of creative work, and of active work all come together uh, around this nexus. So you asked this question to many of your conversational partners, and every time I hear it, it's it's a question that's fresh. And I would have to say that for me, I really think about one of the initial experiences that catalyzed my life in art and horticulture even before I knew it, was, was Lake Erie. And uh, as a child, I lived right at the edge of Lake Erie. And so my family would spend a lot of time in the summer swimming in the lake. But there was all, all, also a, a, a profound natural occurrence going on at that time. This is the early 1960s. The lake was eroding parts of the shoreline in Ashtabula, Ohio, where we lived. And I, I mm -hmm. remember as a child, people talking about how they would be able to remember six rows of trees, then five rows of trees, then fewer and fewer rows of trees as evidence of this living force of the lake that was 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 scooping away the shoreline and and literally combing the the trees into the lake and it was both fascinating and also quite frightening at, for me but i used to i used to go and sit by those trees and look out at the lake and think about this awesome power yeah that was a childhood memory that was a real that is still a real touchstone but then over the years, um, especially when I moved to Seattle after college and graduate school, I had a pr profoundly influ influential experience getting to know the Pacific Northwest and the horticultural fantasy land <laughs> that is the Pacific Northwest. So in the early 1990s, I was working as a museum educator at Seattle Art Museum. And I was learning from people in the Northwest, like Mary Fisher, who started a nursery called Cultus Bay Nursery on Whidbey Island mm -hmm. about using native plants in the landscape. And Mary was studying with Daniel Hinckley. Heronswood Nursery was another place that lit my fire. Um, I made gardens when I lived there and everyone did. Um, and you, you didn't have to be an expert. So as I was 
working as a baby museum educator and developing my professional life as a as an art history person and a teacher, I was also painting and 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 moving more and more toward um, moving more toward an independent life as an artist. So all of that was going on when I was living in Seattle. I am enjoying this sort of collective walk through our horticultural times these past decades because you're tracking in your own life some of the big trends in our horticultural and garden and plant loving lives these past 30 years so um yeah keep keep going with this yeah that's really true um the through line is so exciting to think about um it's reassuring in a way mm. but i also see it as an enormous privilege that these are privileges that I have had that aren't available to everyone. I mean, I should mention that a dear friend of mine, um, Annie Ross was another influence on me because she taught me all about Mayan cultural practices around gardens. Mm -hmm. And she was a fellow educator at Seattle art museum who was working on the, um, interpretation of the Northwest Coast Native American collections. So all these things were threaded through um, the experience of plants and gardens and and art making mm-hmm. in those years. Mm-hmm. And as we know, that that interface between horticulture and the the fine arts or I, I, those categorizations of art is, are always very um, baffling to me, but uh, the, the, <laughs> yeah. that, that interface between horticulture and gardens and plants and art is such a rich scene in, in our world across history and time and place. So you, you are in this very vibrant, very fertile uh, location, and you are developing all of these different knowledge bases and skills, it sounds like. Where do you go from there? How do you decide to follow either painting or garden design or research and advocacy? Yes. I mean, that I moved to New York City in the early 2000s with my partner. And I set up a studio where we live here in the Bronx, and I continued to earn a living primarily through um, museum work and and working as a, a programs museum educator and program curator at a couple of different institutions in New York City. And eventually I got very involved with my co-op building. I live in a large apartment building in the Bronx. And I got involved um, as a member of the co-op board, not because I have any interest in governance, but because I I really wanted to take over the quote-unquote garden or landscape around our building. And I I wanted total control (laughs) to be able to revise this this space which would become and is one of the the rare green spaces in in our neighborhood although we do live we do live near some amazing gardens public gardens which I'll talk about later so uh 
the first project that I got involved in was kind of dealing with the large enclosure that stores all of the trash that our building produces and um, tried to get that situated so that we could have a little bit more space and, and rethink some of the plantings that had been done in the 1960s when our building was built. And I just really like Ellen Shipman, the landscape architect that we'll talk about a little bit later. I just set at studying what other gardeners were doing in my borough, uh, going to talks and lectures and reading and, and just like having at it on the soil of our, of our building, which was primarily filled with old backfill from when the building was built. So it's been about a 10 year journey and it led me to um, take a leap and, and get my horticultural degree in sustainable garden design at New York Botanical Garden, which at a certain point, I think if you have uh, an unstoppable passion for something, you, you, you are enriched by becoming more educated about this, the scientific aspects of it or the cultural aspects of it. And that's what I have received in my training. And mm -hmm. the garden is ever evolving around my building. <laughs> that is so, that is such a, that is such a <laughs> wonderful uh, creation story for the garden there. And so I want to go in a couple of directions, but first maybe describe what that garden looks like at this point and what you have incorporated into it and what you are really pleased with uh, in these ensuing years from that, you know, kind of ulterior motive for being on the co-op board <laughs> to full con full control over the decision-making at least as to what, what, how this garden would go forward. Well, imagine a building from the mid-1960s. Imagine the Jetsons era. So it's a 21-story apartment building that sits right up against the Harlem River at the confluence of the Harlem River and the Hudson River. And our neighborhood is called the Spite and Dival, Dutch for spitting devil. So it's very windy and it's sloped. And there's a thin slice of land that um, that surrounds our building. It's about 20 feet wide all the way uh, around the front of the building. And what we've done is to just amend the soil over the years with compost and permaculture cuttings. Anything that we've cut, we've kind of put back into the soil. It gets blown away every winter because we are in an extremely windy uh, part of New York City between um, the tip of Manhattan and the Bronx. And so we really, the, the garden has evolved because we've had to, to remove things that have died and start planting things like service berries and, and lindera and various native grasses and my fa very favorite obsession right now, which is um, sanguisorba. I found a nursery called Isma up in Rhode Island that does amazing work with sanguisorba. Mm -hmm. And so um, that seems to withstand the winds and it also offers up so much all, all season long and into the fall. So lots of different things, berry bushes, 
different cornus, solidagos, anything that'll survive. So, and it, it goes through changes every year. And it sounds like you are focused not only on the beauty and the sort of seasonal dynamics of these plants, but you just listed some of our, you know, sort of top pollinator plants and and berry and fruit producing um, natives uh, to to a great extent um, that really support not just you as a gardener or the building as an aesthetic space, but are one of the refuges for uh, for wildlife that that might need that support, even though you are surrounded by the green space of of the green space along the rivers or you know the several large parks and gardens that you you mentioned earlier, including the New York Botanic Garden, the Brooklyn Botanic, Wave Hill, Central Park. You know, all of these are within uh, as the crow flies, not not too many miles. Right, exactly. Absolutely. And, you know, when you were just reminding me of all those different uh, gardens, I, I, I was thinking how interesting it can be to to garden in little pockets of the city. For example, we're really being challenged by spotted lanternflies now, and then they really only started to appear in the last couple of years en masse. So here's a new challenge that everybody's really twittering about and trying to figure out what's going on. And, and mm-hmm. so it's catalyzing different kinds of problem-solving conversations in my community. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Ongoing, right? The challenges yeah. and and the joys, both ongoing. You have taken on this garden simultaneously. You have continued quite extensively your your painting work and studio work, as well as, um, as you said, taking yourself to school, getting this garden sustainable garden design certificate under your under your belt, and um, and that perhaps. Is that what led you to the research that you began on Ellen Biddle Shipman that would then move at least one of these threads of your braided life into an even deeper interest? I think so. I mean, the as an artist, as, as a painter, I have studied the history of art and architecture in the United States. And so I... I knew about the Cornish colony, which was one of America's first stardust colonies and where Ellen Shipman lived in the early part of the 20th century. But I didn't really know about her until I started visiting the garden and sat in um, Marta McDowell's amazing landscape history course. And all of a sudden I started to like sit up straight as a ramrod and pay attention to these things that I had never really learned about before. Ellen Shipman is really known as kind of a painterly garden designer because Mm -hmm. she, uh, she was embedded in a community of visual artists and architects and writers and, and was, infused with with their work and the gardens that they made in Cornish, New Hampshire. So it was like, bingo, this is somebody I really need to understand better and and study. So it was both through Marta's Marta's work and Marta's 
teachings, but also, of course, the great Judith Tankard and Judith, the North Star of Women in Garden Design in America. So she's right there as one of my teachers. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're in conversation this week with Bronx-based artist, writer, researcher, garden designer, and ecological land trust advocate, Rebecca Allen. Her solo exhibit, Cultivating Eden, is on display at Wave Hill Gardens through June 4th of this year. We'll be right back after a quick break for more about this ecological and art of the garden conversation. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. CP is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens and America's gardening traditions. The Conservancy helps fuel America's passion for gardens, and one of the ways they do this is through their Open Days program, a nationwide community of gardens and garden enthusiasts teaching and inspiring each other. Since 1995, their Open Days has welcomed over a million visitors into thousands of private landscapes, from urban rooftops to organic farms, historic estates to innovative suburban lots in 41 states. For more information on Open Days, head on over to GardenConservancy.org. Hey, it's Jennifer. You know I love when Rebecca refers to the guests on Cultivating Place as my conversational partners. Because that's what we are, conversational partners in growing a better gardened world. I'll take that. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with Bronx-based artist, writer, researcher, garden designer, and ecological land trust advocate, Rebecca Allen. As we come back, Rebecca is sharing more about her intertwining interests in art, research, history, women in landscape, architecture, and design, and especially her abiding regard for Ellen Biddle Shipman. Welcome back. Ellen Biddle was born in 1869, and she died in 1950. She married a man named Louis Shipman um, when she was uh, a student in, uh, at Radcliffe. And she and Louis moved to the Cornish colony and set up a household where she really both of them became very active socially uh, uh, amongst the artists and the writers and architects who lived there. And then she, she was primarily a self-taught gardener for, you know, for 15 years, she worked the soil in um, Plainfield, New, Plainfield, New Hampshire in her, in their first house. And then in a second house that was called Brook Place, she, uh, played out her her own personal inquiry uh, about plantings that were 
reflective of her artistic talent. And I really believe that she had an inherent artistic skill that was only more honed and refined after she became an apprentice in the architectural office of Charles Platt, and then went on to work with other important American architects um, over her lifetime. She she became one of the most prolific garden designers in the early part of the 20th century, designing, I think, something like a little over 600 gardens and even some gardens that we don't even know about. My mind is is overwhelmed when I think about the range of her work, the reach of her work, the the, the physical expansiveness of where she got to how she to how she was working with clients all over the country. Shipman's career was really built upon uh, private gardens for the most part. Clients that she found through her own, by dint of her own social skills. And she wasn't a wealthy woman. She wasn't like some of her peers, um, Annette Hoyt Flanders and Beatrix Ferrand, who took the grand tours of European gardens. She really had to figure out a way to um, find clients through her associations with the architects and people that could reach out to her. She she didn't turn down work to to revitalize other professionals' gardens. She took it on. She 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 built her business that way. Do you think her painterly um, nature came from that community ethos at the Cornish Colony, or where do you think that comes in? I do think that I do think that that was the primary in, influence. Um, yeah, the gardens of Maxfield Parish and Augustus St. Gaudens and other there were other painters at the colony, and I, mm-hmm. I think that she observed that. But she also had such a a a, a kind of native intelligence around, you know, for example, four to six plants in a garden and that was more kind of a standard practice for her and she had a she had systems that helped her create these drifts of color and texture that, that went across the seasons and she read you know she read all of the literature the garden literature that was available at the time journals books and she again she she learned through reading and and practice. And so it's almost like I, as I'm listening to you, I'm hearing, you know, that adage of the creativity that's born of discipline. Yeah. Okay. So now I would love to have you take us to your introduction to the, the remnant extant, Mm -hmm. but sort of, Mm -hmm. sort of, um, you know, in in flux garden designed by Shipman at Greycliff. Oh, sure. I grew up about eight miles from Greycliff, but I had no idea what was there in terms of right. Ellen Biddle Shipman until I was a. Isn't that always the way? Yeah. Always the way. You think you're a grown up, and you're really you're just an infant. <laughs> you're you're an infant, and you're in your learning curve. 
<laughs> but I knew about Greycliff because it was a house that was was designed as the summer house for a wealthy couple named um, Darwin Martin and Isabel Martin. And the house itself was designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in the mid-20s um, as a summer home um, south of Buffalo, about 20 miles south of Buffalo, to provide the Martins with a retreat for their family um, that happened to be under construction right at the time of the um, the great stock market crash. And when I got to know it as a high school student, it was just at the very beginning of um, being recognized as a site that sh should absolutely be preserved, restored, protected by a, a newly forming uh, conservancy that was being established. Now, today, the, under the leadership of uh, Anna Kaplan, who's the exec, ex, executive director and her board and team, uh, Greycliff has substantially completed a two-decade or something like that restoration, revitalization of the Shipman landscape that was that involved the work of many people, including... Patricia O'Donnell of Heritage Landscapes, who did the original cultural landscape report a number of years ago. So that was the guidepost for the revitalization. And it now can be seen in its tremendous glory. If you visit Greycliff, you can see the picking border and uh, the croquet lawn and the, the evergreen sunken garden and all of the different aspects of the garden rooms that Shipman's um, specified in her drawing. Now I should say that her her drawing and Shipman's Shipman's design was catalyzed by Isabel and Darwin Martin's decision to have Shipman come and build upon or augment Frank Frank Lloyd Wright's landscape design. Oh, okay. Frank Lloyd Wright had a long relationship with the DeMar Martins going back to the early 1900s when he designed their primary house in the city. But by the time he had finished the summer house in on the lake in Derby, New York, he really just created what I would call a summary landscape plan. It was very broad. So tell us, like, when and how was Shipman brought in? Greycliff decided to restore the garden back to circa 1930, which was the the the, the years around 1930 were the years that Shipman was, was working on the plans. One of the mysteries that we have been pursuing has been how, how did Shipman arrive at this relationship with the Martins? How did she work in Western New York? What were her other relationships and clients? And I think we've narrowed it down. And I'm going to talk about that at the Great Cliff Ellen Shipman programs in May. But she already had established relationships with several other clients in Western New York. She was invited to design a garden at Chautauqua 
that was the cottage of Thomas Edison and Minna Miller Edison. Yeah. This is just down the road from Great Cliff a few years before that. And then she did work for several of Buffalo's wealthy families, the Seymour Knox family. Okay. And other private garden clients that we don't have drawings for the gardens, but we have evidence that she was there. It's really been an incredibly fascinating treasure hunt to figure out how she met, was introduced to, and then eventually was befriended by these clients. She comes in, she she fills in the specifics. Can you talk a little bit about the specifics and and what they were going for in this garden so that people have a vision of of what the current team there is working towards? When she came in and visited the the Martins, she um surveyed and made sketches um after her visit she requested and received frank lloyd wright's landscape drawing and when that arrived in her office in new york she started to make sketches and notes over top of it um one of the things that wright had specified was this circular pool in the center of the driveway and she thought that that should be removed. So we see her making a note over top of Wright's drawing saying, remove this. And then she begins to use this incredibly beautiful swaying line to indicate beds and borders around the property that overlooks Lake Erie. And it's up uh, on top of a bluff that has an incredibly expansive view of the lake. So she clusters her her garden rooms in sections that include a picking border, um, croquet lawns for the kids and also for the maids, um, a garden on the bluff, and then a courtyard garden that surrounds the prairie-style Frank Lloyd Wright house. Yeah, Wow. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about the picking border is that Isabel Martin is known to have been a, a, a skilled flower arranger. And she also had uh, a complicated uh, medical condition that affected her vision. So her eyesight was compromised. And I think that this picking border was the center of their friendship. You know, and I can only imagine what they, you know, their discussions about what plants would be would be planted. So today the picking board has been completely revitalized by the team and with the assistance of horticulturist uh, Nellie Gardner. And so when I'm looking at the website, would the picking border be that lovely sort of um, walkway flanked by what looks like a, a very traditional and painterly um, kind of English style? perennial border with, you know, masses of peonies and uh, salvia nemorosa and lupins and um, low-growing euphorbias or and maybe ladies' mantle. Is that the picking border? Yeah, that's the picking border. Oh my gosh, it's gorgeous. And so when the 
the property was identified as being one worthy of protection and revitalization. What was the state of the garden at that point? And and this was how many years ago now that that sort of first identification took place? Oh my God, 30 years ago or something, probably more. What state had the gardens kind of de- declined, like reverted to, or what What state were they in at that point? They really were almost disappeared. Mm-hmm. The house itself had gone through quite a lot of transition. It was at one time a um, residence of the Pierist Catholic Fathers, and, and they had uh, an important historical era there. But the the outlines of the garden and the the extant remaining plantings were were uh, quite minimal. Mm-hmm. Um, but through the process of the cultural landscape report and then the strategic plan, they started to inventory things along the perimeter of the property and. Nellie, their horticulturist, started to identify and find things that were um, drawn on Ellen Chipman's plan. So there were there were some trees, shrubs, in particular a big juniper that was from that era. As you are putting together this day of programs that is being based at Greycliff, I believe, on the work of Ellen Biddle Shipman. What what is the what is the mission of this? Give people a little bit about the history for this day of programs and your goals for them. And then we'll sort of talk about the physical gardens that were will be included and um, the dates and things. The Ellen Shipman programs will take place in Buffalo on May 11th and 12th. Uh, Greycliff is presenting these programs and sponsoring these programs, but we will be visiting um, a private garden in the city of Buffalo. There will be a lecture at the 20th Century Club, uh, uh, a historic women's club in Buffalo, with... um, Patricia O'Donnell from Heritage Landscapes and myself will both be giving diff- different perspectives on Ellen Shipman at Greycliff. And we will also have a tour of the revitalized gardens at Greycliff. Our, our mission is to elevate the role of Ellen Shipman and her presence at Greycliff and this layered landscape that was conceived initially by Frank Lloyd Wright, and then augmented and brought to fruition through the work of Shipman and her relationship with Isabel and Darwin Martin. Kind of widening out from that circle, we're going to be talking about other gardens that Shipman had a hand in in Western New York to draw stars on the map, to make people aware of her influence there and and provide a kind of model or microcosm for her career, that that she developed relationships with clients and then she met new clients in a region. And she would oftentimes, as she did with Greycliff, would be working on six, seven, eight projects at a time. I mean, at the time that she was working 
at Greycliff on the drawings for Greycliff, she was also doing um, work for the Seymour and Ox family. And it was just on the heels of her commission to design the ladies border at New York Botanical Garden. So we really feel that um, Shipman's genius as Patricia O'Donnell refers to her when I agree with Shipman's genius is, is, is not fully known and and we are so excited because we we feel that it's going to make people want to go out and read about her and learn about why she uh, is important and what her artistry was all about this is cultivating place i'm jennifer jewell we're in conversation this week with bronx-based artist writer researcher garden designer and ecological land trust advocate rebecca allen her sustainable landscape design business is known as painterly gardens we'll be right back after a quick break for more about this ecological and art of the garden conversation stay with us Hey, it's Jennifer. So one of the things I'm struck by in this conversation with Rebecca is the great diversity of ways we all have and we all engage with. To use the title of Rebecca's art exhibit focusing on the beauty and labor of the gardening world, we all engage in the cultivation of Eden. There are a great many artistic and intellectual, emotional, spiritual, and physical ways we can all contribute to this exact kind of cultivation. So be it. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with Bronx-based artist Rebecca Allen. As we come back, Rebecca is sharing her hopes for such research and public programming as to changing our gardening world and the artistry of humans before us, which leads us to her own artwork. I just hope that people will be re-enchanted with the world. I mean, that, that, that just that small goal. uh, And that's my goal. (laughs) Um, I I hope that, that our, our visitors and and the people who come to the programs in May will, will come away with a sense of astonishment and awe about the capacity for a human being to wrap their, their arms and their bodies around their environment and and i mean certainly i hope that people will become re-enchanted with the landscape of western new york and mm-hmm. look a little more closely at precedents in the landscape even before hopefully before the the 20th century that that they'll think back on what was there the farmland the indigenous indigenous presence of the Seneca nation and then come forward into their own living environments and public spaces and understand that there are touchstones for making their landscapes inhabitable and nourishing. That's what I hope. That's a good hope. That's a good hope. And I, I see, I see this idea of being enchanted with the world and wanting to share that in both of your 
sort of two other primary threads in this work, Rebecca, in your in your painting and in your land advocacy. Will you talk to us a little bit about your painting? Um, and you recently had a beautiful exhibit at Wave Hill called Cultivating Eden. And share a little bit more about the the focus of your painting work or or some of the primary focal points of your your painting work and um your your inspirations and what you're hoping to share with that as well besides just the process of doing it and your clear love for it yes the exhibition at wave hill is called cultivating eden and it will be on view there until june 4th and it really is a a celebration and an inquiry into the work and the labor of the remarkable gardeners at Wave Hill and the spaces that they create and cultivate there. The paintings and and the endeavor of painting is is a different kind of language. It's a visual language and it's also a, a dialogue with the sensate world through color, texture, form, space. And I just find, I find painting incredibly difficult and incredibly satisfying. A little like gardening, right? A little bit like gardening. Yeah. Does that sound familiar? To <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. <laughs> and I would say that in both painting and garden work, I feel much closer to people sometimes than I'm when I'm actually with people. Does that sound like a radical introvert or what? Um, <laughs> but it just is a process of studying the world around us and finding its essential forms and making decisions about how those observed forms are laid down on a canvas or in a drawing. In the case of the Wave Hill paintings, the structural centerpiece of those paintings is something called the Dry and Herb Garden, which is this amazing ruin of the greenhouses of the former Perkins family that lived there in the early part of the 20th century. And the dry gardens have been cultivated within this ruined stone structure so that when you look down on it from the slope above you're almost looking like all these different switchbacks in and out of the space that's punctuated with plants that don't need a lot of water and you know for me it's it's been an, a, a very interesting process of learning how to see that space and then realizing it in paintings of it at different times of year, from different points of view, because I see that garden as a painting that you walk around in. I love that. Um, and I love that bird's eye view of this space and, and the ruin and the sort of story within the story. And of course, every garden is a story within a story because it's a garden on this great garden to earth. But, um, all of the layered history there. And mm. when you are when you are approaching 
any painting or you are and and your your painting is very bold um it's it's very when i look at it it's it's very it's colorful but there are strong uh lines and geometries which aren't rigid they're mm. like there's like a flowing strength to 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 the way your brush strokes and your your color work come together so that there's a little bit of that dis- that, that disciplined creativity again that we referred to with Ellen Biddle Shipman's genius as well as your painting has evolved and and your intellectual and activist life has has evolved has your painting changed with it and and when i look at some of your paintings many of which are focused on plants or lands or or gardens um spaces what are what what are the emotions that you see and and come to you out of that it's good because it's both physical and intellectual as we look at a painting the question makes me think a lot about experiences that um should be shared about the the hardships of living li- our lives and and the the sorrows of life because for me creating a painting is an opportunity for developing metaphors that help us process the the pleasures of life but also the difficulties of living on this planet um the losses and the vulnerabilities of everyday life you know if, if we think about just the kind of physical strength it takes to do any job whether it's serving food as a at a restaurant or digging up a tree um there are ways that for me that painting exclusively has the power to translate those soulful and emotional experiences by way of transparency, opacity, gesture, mm-hmm. um, uh, creating uh, the metaphors for different kinds of space, light. There are painters like Helen Frankenthaler and Joan Mitchell that I look to over and over again as examples and role models that have created new ways of understanding those meanings for gesture and transparency and opacity. One of the things that um, I've noticed about the land conservancy work is that when I go to Kentucky, when when I meet with my colleagues on the Kentucky Land Trust Board in, in Pine Mountain in southeastern Kentucky, I'm just... Um, I'm awestruck at the resilience of the people who live there and who have had to cope with environmental losses and collapse of watersheds um, over time, but also how people are rebuilding their surroundings and rebuilding ways of living. So um, these other things that we've been talking about during our conversation are counterpoints to the the mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mm-hmm. that we all feel in response to when we see and experience loss. Yeah. Yeah. And how we 
process that and compost it or transform it maybe if we can, right, into something like a ruin or a garden or a painting or um, or land advocacy? Yep, absolutely. And so tell us a little bit about this group in Kentucky and why why that group, Rebecca? The Kentucky Natural Lands Trust is devoted to protecting and preserving large landscape tracts. And it has devoted itself over the past 30 years to um, mapping uh, a stretch of this large landscape along Pine Mountain in the Blanton National Forest that is one of the rarest mixed mesophytic forests in the world. So it has wow. an, an endemic species of insects and um, other creatures that aren't found anywhere else on the planet because of the mixture of flora and fauna there. And I got involved with it because a friend of mine who is a sculptor and a, a visual artist invited me to go on a residency there. And, and the, the Kentucky Natural Lands Trust also has a collective of artists and writers that it's been developing over the last several years who go down there and participate in conversations and hikes and uh, work to communicate how special this place is and to help the land trust continue to advocate for the protection of, extensive protection of this land, which is in the heart of coal country. Um, and so much of the land has been um, mind, but much of it is also pristine. So that takes me to Kentucky a couple of times a year. Was there a connection for you with Kentucky prior to being involved in this? What drew you to that part of the world versus something, say, in the Adirondacks or? The artist Zoe Strecker, who teaches, um, at Transylvania University in Lexington, a okay. friend okay. of mine yeah. was the person who drew me to that particular place. Yeah, it was a person. It was a friendship. I love that. Again, let's come back to trifecta as we finish up our conversation here. You know, we've we've covered a lot of ground from, <laughs> um, you know, the the research and the education and the sharing forward and the the joy and the mourning. But when you think about these three um, strands in your life that keep lapping and overlapping and pulling you forward and giving you both meaning and momentum, as it were, of of the artistry and the relationship with plants and um, the the design of both paintings and gardens, and then this. Uh, tenacious desire to help protect land um, in one place, probably as a stand-in for protecting land in all places. What are your greatest hopes from this, this fullness? And is it still that idea of 
hoping that people become re-enchanted with the world and maybe fight fight like hell for it. I do feel that way. Um, and I also I don't have a, I don't have children, but I feel that I have a role to play in enhancing a enhancing the lives of people around me and that come after me. I really feel a responsibility to creating a life that is an example of service and joy and contribution. I mean, those are all very high-minded ideals. But I really mm. do feel that way, and it's hard work sometimes. And it that that hard work is what galvanizes the friendships that to me are at the center of all the hard work that we do, whether it's internal spiritual work or outer work in the world or political work. And so doing all of these forms of labor and endeavor for me um, pulls me forward, you know? Yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and learn about all that you are growing in this world, Rebecca. Oh, this has been an enormous pleasure and your contribution to my understanding of all of these things that we've talked about is so key and so important, Jennifer. So thank you. Rebecca Allen is a New York-based visual artist known for her richly layered and chromatically nuanced paintings. Her work investigates watershed environments and landscapes and is inspired by her deep interest in botany and land conservation. Join us again next week when we dig into the many faces of motherhood in preparation for Mother's Day, in conversation once again with award-winning poet, mother, educator, editor, partner, and gardener, Camille Dungy. Her newest book is Soil, the story of a black mother's garden. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.